0: Welcome to the Millennial Falcon, a pop culture podcast by Three Geeky Millennials. I'm Willoughby Dobbs, and today with me, as always, are
1: I'm Hua Chen Bui, a USA Today contributor and a pop culture journalist in DC. And I am Anya Crittenton,
2: who is no longer an editor and writer for Entertainment Earth News. Ah! So I know. So before we get started with our episode, just a quick announcement. Um yesterday no, Friday. Today is Sunday. I don't know what days are anymore, you guys. Um, (laughs) Friday was my last day at Entertainment Earth um, because I got a new opportunity. And so next week, I will be starting my new position as associate editor at the tracking board.
0: Nice. So I'm very
2: excited about that.
0: So for those of you who may not know, what is the tracking board?
2: Um, It's an entertainment site uh, based here in Los Angeles. Um, They have kind of two main sections to their site. They have entertainment news... Um, TV reviews, movie reviews, casting news, just all sorts of news. Um, and then the other side of their thing is they do a lot of spec tracking and script tracking and writer updates. They do a lot of competitions for writers who want to get into movies and television. So that's kind of the other half of the site. So it's very industry-facing.
0: Cool, cool.
1: So Anya will cool. know all of the great casting deets and, <laughs> got, and uh, juicy scoops before us.
0: Oh. All the hot goss.
1: Oh, hot oh yeah. Goss. <laughs> all that.
2: And I hope hot goss also means Ryan Gosling.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> Alternatively, yes. Yes. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, the congratulations on your new job. I hope it all works out well.
2: Yeah, Thank congrats. you. I'm sure you guys will be getting oh, yeah. more updates. So yeah. Alright, so going into the episode now, which is arguably the more exciting part of this. <laughs> um, a couple weeks ago. Uh, an actor that we all really love got cast in a franchise we all really love. And that would be John Boyega in Pacific Rim 2. Which led us to thinking about how much we love Pacific Rim and how it, it's so great. And specifically about its world building. How director Gamma del Toro was able to build this world where kaiju started attacking our Earth. And we had built giant robots to combat them. And how he had kind of built this world in two hours... And it felt fully formed, and just how other movies have also tried their hand at world building, and how it's worked in the past, and how it hasn't worked, what you should do, what you shouldn't do. And so today we're just going to discuss world building in film and what we think of it.
1: Yeah? Yeah. So, what do you guys think is the most effective way of world building? Because there are very different techniques that a lot of directors have used to, to world building. Uh, they use the montage, the voiceover, sometimes just a little bit of text on screen, or sometimes it's just informed, like characters will deliver the world building through exposition. Uh, so what has been like the most effective way world building for all of you guys?
0: Um, I think, uh, I would say most recently, uh, the Mad Max movie, uh, Fury Road. I think it has an incredible world that that you that you just understand almost immediately from the get-go you understand that there's been an apocalypse and you've seen that society has kind of been rebuilt into this weird desolate like punk rock Mm -hmm. post-punk rock you know everybody's wearing weird clothing and uh uh everything is like designed with like a morton joe's logo on it so like you can tell that he's like you know the main Supplier of like everything, um, and I think I mean in in the most modern case that would be the one I I would go for exactly. Um, other movies that have done it really well, um, I think we can go right ahead and say Lord of the Rings. Um, but I think if, that's because it was also based on a book, so like we could talk about that where it's like you know the, how these movies are adapted from books and how they how they do well adapting to world building too. Um, and, but as for, like, I don't know, uh, for other movies, uh, like, Snowpiercer did a really good job of, like, show of figuring out, like, how to tell this world and, and the world within the, the, the train how it exists, too. Um, it's, and, I don't know, what do you guys, what do you guys think?
1: HT, you wanted to talk about Snowpiercer, didn't you? I did. I really liked the world building in Snowpiercer. I think that was my favorite world building as of recent movies. Um, Mad Max did a really good job, but um, Snowpiercer, I think, did um, a very simple approach to it. It kind of just had, I think, a little news montage, which is something that you see often in like these world building movies. Um, but it was very brief, and then it kind of just fell into this more quiet version of world building where they had like little text, and then just you kind of... it it informs the audience from there like through the action and stuff and it's a very simple world so that made it easier so like each um train car had like a very distinct um look and theme and appearance so that way you can kind of just like learn from the world as you as the passengers like in the back of the train go through each train car so I like the simplicity of Snow, of Snowpiercer, but it also helped that the world of Snowpiercer was so simple and also was somewhat based in our reality. Um, so, and Mad Max, yeah, did a really great job again with just like a simple voiceover, and then you kind of learn from there. Um, I always like when movies uh, don't assume that your audiences are stupid, and I like that yes. they they uh, kind of just treat you not with kid gloves, but like let you just. Uh, kind of eke out what the world is from various plot points and and the narrative and everything like that
2: yeah Yeah, i completely agree about not treating your audience like they're stupid Mm -hmm. i think that's very important um i was going to say um when you're talking about what's most effective i think there are two things that i always look for when it Mm -hmm. comes to world building and that is show don't tell and then also restraint yeah um, so for me, a really good example of how not to do world building is uh, Jupiter Ascending, which was the film, what, last year? Or the year before? It was last uh, year.
0: 2015.
2: Yes. Yeah, last year, uh, the, the fantasy sci-fi film um, with Channing Tatum and Mila Kunis, um, which had the potential to be really great and really fun, but no one told the Wachowskis No. They like overstuffed the film, and there was too much going on, too much they were trying to like put into this world, when instead they could have pulled back and instead had a tighter story. It seemed that every idea that they had for this film, they tried to put in the film, regardless of whether or not it worked. And so it was just kind of overwhelming and messy and convoluted and... I didn't really get a sense of what the world actually was, even though it was a cool, I could tell that it was a cool world and that it could have been really interesting had they just kind of pulled back and shown some restraint um, and instead had a tighter story in a cool world. Um, But instead they seemed more focused on putting every little detail that they could think of into the world, which didn't really work for me. Um, and then the other thing I think with, like, Show, Don't Tell and, like, with Restraint, I think two of my favorite examples recently um, have been uh, the Spike Jones movie, Her, mm-hmm. with Joaquin Phoenix, and then um, just recently with The Lobster, um, which I loved. And I think with these two, there's no real sort of, like, exposition or, like, people telling you, like, this is the world, this is what it's like now. Like, they just kind of, like, throw you into it, and you just kind of have to acclimate yourself and with show, don't tell, and seeing characters doing certain things, you're able to kind of, like, get what this world is. Again, going along with the whole not treating your audience like they're stupid because they just kind of throw you in it and they're like, all right, like, this is what it is. Just start picking up on things, um, which I really like about those two. And I like that, like, I have questions about the world, but I don't need them answered to feel satisfied.
1: I think it is notable, though, that your favorite uh Versions of world building recently are smaller sci fi films or fantasy yeah. films. Um, and like the ones that are most difficult to do a very grand world building is the fantasy film um, because there's just it, you have to basically build an entire new history, an entire new people, new species basically. And it's very difficult. And I think the only most like successful version of that has been Lord of the Rings. Well, Harry Potter, too. But Lord of the Rings, I think, is the pinnacle of fantasy world building. And a lot of series after that have tried to imitate that and have somewhat failed. Um, and why do you guys think that Lord of the Rings has been so successful with world building and is like seen as the pinnacle of fantasy world building?
0: I think it just did a really great job production of, in, in the production of the movies. That you kind of get it. You get a sense of how everybody lives in each each like section of Middle Earth. Like you understand. Like immediately you know like what kind of village the, the Shire is, and you understand Rohan and you understand Gondor. Like the second that you that you take a, a one look at their at their way of life, and I think that that is a great uh um like success on this on the part of the filmmakers and how they uh took their time to basically create I mean yeah it was based off of J.R.R. R. Tolkien's novels but and visually but visually it's a completely different beast to, to like put that on screen and I think that uh I mean it took years to do all that and I think that that's what really sold it was the attention to detail but not in an overblown this is the way the world works speech this is just it's almost like you know you if you've never seen Lord of the Rings before, by the end of the first movie, you'll understand like what world you're in. Like at at least you'll understand that there's like men and dwarves and elves and they're kind of, they don't all like each other. uh, And I mean, that's putting it very simply, but I think that you kind of get a sense of, of how this world works because of the, uh, how the filmmakers went about presenting it. And it's such a, such an epic and uh, attention detailed way.
2: Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I mean, I feel like what I like about Lord of the Rings as well is that there's not a lot of exposition, I suppose. Yeah. I think I'm just someone who just really doesn't like exposition all that much sometimes. <laughs> I don't
1: really think anyone likes exposition,
2: honestly. Um, like,
0: Back before the Dark Ages, we did this all the time. <laughs> <laughs> blah, blah,
2: blah. <laughs> like, in the beginning, like, they have, like, the whole story of, like, the rings and everything and Sauron, which, you know, you have to give, because um, that's not where our story starts um but then once our story does start there's not a lot of like it's not like there's like a text on screen that's like this is rohan they ride horses blah 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 like you see them and they're like all of them are on horses so you know they're like a horse-driven society their banners have horses on them you can keep see kind of the landscape that they live in and the way they conduct themselves and this is it goes back to again show don't tell which i feel like i should touch on real quick it's um, a theory in. Writing and storytelling, which is basically show your audience what is happening. Like, show your audience who these characters are rather than just telling them. Rather than, again, saying, like, in Rohan, people ride horses a lot.
0: Right. Don't like if you, tell
2: them that. Show them that. So like you say, a.
0: Like, a. like... was in the first, like, scene. And she's like, welcome to Rohan. We ride horses. Like, mm-hmm. that would have completely tear, torn yeah. the entire part. like,
1: the show version of that would be um them riding in on horses, like, gallantly, just kind of entering the scene like that and that's yeah a- as they do yeah
0: and like like you said the banners have horses on it so they value they very much value horse, horse yeah it's just it's all these little life. things that
2: like yeah that like build your world that your audience can figure out what's going on without you having to tell them again everything comes back to like show don't tell don't to your audience like they're stupid it's all these little important things that I think are so necessary to world building and if you don't do them your world will crumble yeah personally. Do you guys think that Lord of the Rings has, and like Harry Potter has, not like a handicap, but like the fact that they're based on books that some people knew, Mm -hmm. does that make it, like the fact that like Peter Jackson didn't have to build this world himself, like Tolkien had built it for him already, he just had to build it for the screen, whereas something like Star Wars wasn't built before. George Lucas built that himself for the screen. Therefore, arguably, is it harder is it harder to do something completely original for your film or is it harder to adapt a world from a book and adapt it into the movies?
0: I think it's harder to adapt a world from a book into movies because adapting it originally you have no the only thing you have to go on is inspiration of other other films and movies whereas when you're adapting something straight from a book into the, you have to try and get it right or at least get the essence of it right. So you have you have you have a a you have a, a a goal in mind that with an original film, you really almost don't. Whereas with an original idea of a world, it's almost like, it's kind of like the Wild West. It's fair play. You can do kind of whatever you want as long as it's within, within a set of rules. Whereas if you're adapting like a um, a book to movie, especially one of fantasy, you, you have to kind of, you have to play by the rules that um, an, a, another author has given you. So you have to say, well, you know, there are no dragons in this world anymore, so you can't just put a dragon somewhere. Um, and Or along the lines of, like, Harry Potter, like, uh, you can only do certain spells that we know exist in this world. Like, you can't just uh, turn back time with a flick of your wrist. Like, you have to have a special, like, device that does that. Um, whereas with Star Wars and other, like, I mean, Star Wars is not super original. I mean, but the his world itself, it's not based it, off of I right. mean,
2: it is original, though. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Like, nothing's original in that sense, but, like, Star Wars is original. Yeah.
0: Right. So, like, he was like, you know what? We're just going to have planets that are based on one topography, and that's the world in this particular instance. And I think that, you know, he, he kind of was able to just kind of fling everything out there, and there's, I mean... Yes, the prequels kind of go a little bit much, and he had no yes-men, so that we kind of get the jupiter sending pro- problem. But there's a lot of exposition in, like, how the Republic works. Um, but with the original movies, you get a sense of how the Empire works just by the fear that everyone has of the stormtroopers and of the Death Star. Like, everyone's like, oh my gosh, what's happening here? Um, and you really don't get a sense of, like, how the Senate works. You understand that there is a Senate, but then uh, he, had, the Emperor had just abandoned You know, thrown it out at the very beginning of A New Hope, uh, and then it's only the regional governors have direct control over their systems. So it's like you kind of get this based uh, idea of how the Empire works and how the Rebellion is working against it. They want to bring back democracy. That's kind of it, and you kind of get that. Whereas, um, and you know, he's just taking it from history, from Flash Gordon, from other stuff. He's mixing it all together, um, and he's playing with his own rules. Whereas with Peter Jackson, he had and uh, the filmmakers on Harry Potter, they had to abide by their respective authors' rules. Which, I mean, what do you guys think of that?
1: I think yes and no. I agree with some aspects of what you're saying, and that like it allow like original stories allow uh, directors and storytellers greater freedom, creative freedom. But I think that um, in Lord of the Rings case, Peter Jackson was only helped by the. Really rich and extensive tapestry that J. M. Tolkien made for him. Like Tolkien was um, a history professor before, a historian before he wrote *Lord of the Rings*, and um, that shows in like the really close attention to detail that he b- makes for the entire world of Middle Earth. And like I think that while you can in original stories like *Star Wars*. Um, do so many, so, so many more things that also um, invites the possibility of bogging the story down with putting in too many details, putting in too many things, and having so many inconsistencies. Um, whereas, like Lord of the Rings, you know where it starts, where it ends. What's the middle? The middle. I or... mean, you
2: can see it. You can see it in the Lord of the Rings trilogy versus the Hobbit trilogy.
1: Mm-hmm. <clears throat> <clears throat> throat>
2: the Hobbit trilogy, which added a lot more than what was in the book mm-hmm. in ways that the Lord of the Rings didn't. And the Hobbit trilogy is decidedly worse mm-hmm. than the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And they tried to do new things and add new stuff. And again, it got bogged down.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, Though I, I think I with have...
1: books, oh, continue.
2: <laughs> I think with books, the hardest part is just adapting to like adapting a book like Lord of the Rings, which is super dense mm-hmm. into, even if it's three hours, it's still three hours versus, a very long very dense book so I think the hardest part is just kind of condensing it yeah. but I think like you were saying the rules that Tolkien had put forth only helped mm-hmm. uh, Peter Jackson rather than hinder him mm-hmm. um, whereas so I think that does help like that's the hardest part is just adapting it and condensing it whereas in a completely original idea you have the uh, possibility of it getting away from you mm-hmm. and it becoming a beast unto itself that really doesn't work
1: yeah. in true. a
2: two hour setting
1: Though I do see Willoughby's point in the early Harry Potter movies, which were a little bit weighed down by the exposition and trying to stick close to the world that was in the books, um, and then like the the series became so much greater creatively once they kind of let go of their like str- strict um, adherence to the books, and kind of just like Alfonso Cuarón went and created did um, Prisoner of Azkaban, which was not completely accurate to the book, but was one is probably the best Harry Potter film. It um, is. Yeah. But, but again, like, it, there's a balance. I'm curious about that, though, because, like, people love the first two Harry Potter movies.
2: Mm-hmm. Like, Christopher Columbus, I felt, brought that world to life in such real ways. He did. And that the later films didn't work as well.
1: Yeah. I mean, they didn't suffer that much, but you could tell in, like, the beginnings of the the first movie especially they were just kind of like oh this is how Hogwarts works this is how et etc cetera, etc cetera. and like it didn't really completely suffer for that but I think that it did weigh down a little bit but then again it's like how else could they have done it at the same time yeah because it is yeah. the first
0: it's the first story in this seven part epic of of this child's life mm-hmm. you kind of have to almost have an entire movie dedicated to like the introduction of it mm-hmm that's um,
2: interesting. I, I don't, I don't see them that way. I've really? never, I've never felt that they were pulled down by that at all. No. Cause there's not really, I don't see the exposition that you're talking about. It just, it's just the characters existing
1: mm.
2: as they are. Like no one's, no one's sitting down. Like, I don't know. Harry's finding out about everything the way he does in the books and it just, it feels natural and it feels right. And so I don't actually find that the first two movies are bogged down in any way. Um, I think that the later films are bogged down. By David Yates, trying to do things that he should not be doing—
1: a little too stylized. I don't know. Like *Deathly Hallows* Part One is still one of my favorite Harry Potter movies too. So, and still it's, my favorite. Yeah, it's like it's, like, it's a personal thing because I really like those sort of intimate character studies and films. Mm-hmm. So, when they in the book, when it didn't it didn't work very well when they were just like camping for half the the, mm. the novel, but it worked really well on screen for me, and I was like, it elevated it. I think.
2: Yeah, and I think. Although we can, Prisoner Baskaban, still the best. Still the best.
0: And I think that with books and movies, it's always kind of interesting, like hit hit or miss, um, on especially when it comes to people's opinions on like what the, how they think they did well adapting something. And I think that um, that it definitely goes back to world building because you kind of have to like how believable is this world? Are they doing you know can can you imagine yourself in this particular world? And I think that. Uh, i mean that's definitely not the, the standard for like these like book to movie adaptations um but i think that, that that's a good um starting point to see like did they get the, the world right um and if they did does that i mean obviously the story matters but like it's it's a i think it's fundamentally one of the first things you have to do is get the world right to adapt a book into a movie what do you guys think
1: i agree um just, like, getting the essence of the world, probably. Uh, more so than even, like, the details. The details are important, and they're the ones that actually help the audience, like, draw the audience into that world. But I think that as long as you get that essence and the... That's the important part, the core of it, I guess. Yeah, even though, like, yeah, world building is very much the devils in the details kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to ask you guys... Uh, we. Co- We'll be kind of touch on this earlier with George Lucas, kind of lucasing his world building, I guess you could say, kind of vlogging it down in lots of details and trying lots of different things that sometimes creatively worked and sometimes did not. Um, with J.K. Rowling, she created this really rich, um, really um, self-contained and original world in the Harry Potter films. But um, some of some people are critiquing or criticizing her continued world building with fantastic beast like she's in through Pottermore she is creating like this history of magic in North America and it's clearly not as well researched or as um, kind of knowledgeable of American history as it was with her uh, world building in Britain for Harry Potter because like when Harry Potter was self contained in that sort of British community it worked well but when you expand it sometimes it doesn't completely work Uh, So what do you guys think of that? Do you think that this expanded world building for, like, Rowling and other directors who try to, like, build upon, like, a more simpler world, uh, is it advisable? Do you think it works? Do you think it can work? I think it can work. I think there's nothing wrong with J.K.
2: Rowling expanding her world. Like, to say that the magic, magic world is contained is... I don't know, but it's not, because, like, we saw Durmstrang, we saw Boban, like, magic is everywhere in this world, like, it is everywhere, like, there is a wizarding school in North America, and there is magic here, and I, it's not contained, and so it's a lot bigger than just Harry Potter, and that's what I love about it, is that the wizarding world is huge, um, I think, so I think there's nothing wrong with expanding, because it already is expanded, like, it already exists. Um, I think the problem comes from I feel like there's a sense of it being rushed right now Mm -hmm. like there's a sense of like you have to like get this out you have to get this out like everyone wants to know about this and it's like rather than taking your time and doing all the research it feels a bit rushed and I think that's kind of where the problem is coming um, with at least Harry Potter but I mean I'd be lying if I said I wasn't excited to get more stuff about Harry Potter like
1: Give it to me. I want more <laughs> magic. Um, Willoughby, I remember a couple episodes ago, This uh, more than a couple, this is a while ago, you kind of mentioned your um, reluctance with J.K. Rowling adding to the canon through her Twitter, for example. Um, mm-hmm. Do you want to, like, talk about that a little bit? The, like, kind of in world-building sense and stuff like that?
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I just find it a little, I mean, like, I, I mean, I know she's the author of the universe, uh, but it it, it just kind of seems, it's not like they're afterthoughts, but it's almost like she'll like confirm or deny something that will be a question on someone's mind about the world of Harry Potter, like in a tweet and on Twitter and be like, this is, this is that, this is you know, this, and um, it kind of uh, goes back to when she revealed that Dumbledore was gay after the book had come out and everyone was kind of like what? And then it was like, oh, we can see it. We can, because of like how she was telling the story of Grindelwald. But like, there was a lot that was kind of like you kind of have to just trust her on these things being like real. And like even, even so, like when she tweets something out and suddenly it's canon. Like I'm just kind of wondering, like, is it? Because it's kind of like it wasn't like in a in a text or it wasn't on Pottermore. It was just kind of her saying something to a fan's question or something so it's kind of like i mean we always talk about death of the author when it comes to stories and how we interpret stories so what do you guys think of her continuing to kind of like expand just like the little details of the world because i don't know to me sometimes it's kind of like i I don't know i I I, I, I like some of it, but it but to me, in my opinion, it just seems a little bit like afterthoughts. But maybe it's just because I don't I don't know. What I don't do know think? if I agree. No.
2: I don't know. Um I think maybe partially it's because I'm getting really tired of the constant
0: criticism thrown her
2: way. Um and I don't think a lot of it is fair. Um but the Dumbledore thing I think is not the same thing as answering a question on Twitter. Dumbledore was a problem because of representation, which the Harry Potter books lack
0: a Mm -hmm, lot. Very very much.
2: And having a canon queer character in your books, in text, is really important for representation and for the fact that children are reading your book. Like, had I read that there was a canon queer character in Harry Potter, that would have affected my whole world. Um, And so I think Dumbledore being gay after the fact is a problem of representation. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think if someone asks her a question and is like, oh, does magical law enforcement have authority over blah, 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 blah on Twitter? And she answers that, like, I don't see why that's a problem. Like, she's not, she doesn't have time to put every detail in her books about the entire world. Like, this is a fully realized world, and she couldn't have put every single question that every fan would ask in her books. And she is the creator of this world, and I think if someone wants to ask her, like, hey, how does this work in the world, and it wasn't in the books, and she says, oh, like this, on Twitter, that's really cool. I see no problem in that. I don't see it as an afterthought. I, th- I see it as fans and creators continuing a dialogue about an interest in the world. So, yeah. Right. North America is different because <laughs> that's a whole nother thing about, again, representation.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So like, that's different. I think it's just, you have to, you you can't just say, oh, it's all the same. Like you have to qualify what it is we're talking about when it comes to world building um, and JK Rowling and all this stuff. But also, I just love her. I love her too. <laughs> yeah, I have- I am becoming weary
0: of it. <laughs> I mean, I love her too. I mean, I'm not... I mean, I, I love the Harry Potter books. It's like, don't, don't get me wrong.
1: Yeah, I have mixed feelings about it too. I think her problem with... Um, kind of building the world through Twitter and through Pottermore kind of has... is somewhat connected... Uh, I agree with like Anya in that it's like a little bit rushed and sometimes they do seem like after afterthoughts, but I do respect her as the author to build her world however she wants. Mm-hmm. It's just like it's whether you think that world building should be kind of created all at once and just like everything is encapsulated in the beginning and like that's the whole author's intent at, at first and like they don't add anything or take anything away afterwards. Um I guess I could think of it as like the anti-token because like he already had the whole plan for the world even before he started writing the story of Lord of the Rings Um, whereas J.K. Rowling is just kind of expanding upon it and she could fall into the danger of lucasing herself as well I hope she Mm -hmm. doesn't but it's just it's a it's a you know shaky path to walk I think so I don't know I agree with both of you, basically. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, it, there's no clear answer. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: Um,
2: although I don't know if there's anything but like excitement for Fantastic Beasts. Oh so, yeah, no.
0: I mean I'm ex- I'm so excited. I love. I want to. I kind of love like the political part of it. Like I love the Ministry of Magic, that whole like part of it. So I want to see like how the Magical Congress of the United States functions and if they function. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: Yeah,
2: yeah, we'll and like, did you guys see the recent featurette about uh, Newt's commander and like his yeah. attorney has that whole moment of being like, your guy's relationship with non-magic people is backwards. Yeah, I yeah, actually, it's a, which I found really
1: interesting. Sorry, what HD? I have not seen that yet. Um I, need Should. To it after. You I don't watch that featurette. Yeah, I saw that it existed, it, but I did not watch it yet.
0: That part really looks interesting because it's almost like they're calling out like American politics, even though it's in the 20s, So it's kind of like. It's interesting how they deal with how they deal with like magic people and non-magic people. No mages, as we call no them mages. in here, yeah. in America.
2: I think so far, <laughs> Fantastic Beasts. The other problem still is representation. Yeah, I But it's a trilogy, so hopefully it'll get better. But that's definitely a bit disheartening, given that it's in '20s New York.
1: Mm-hmm. They have one black actress, I think, playing um, a a. Official in the magical Congress. Yeah, I she's think, like right? one of
2: the, like the head, I think, or
1: something. Like that. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. it's sad that when we're like, oh, one yeah. woman of color. <laughs> well, agreed. Hopefully, it'll change. Um, so, is there anything else that you guys want to add about world building? Um, any other movies that you want to highlight that you think does a really great job with world building? Oh, you know what? We actually didn't even talk about Pacific Rim's world building.
0: We actually have it, which is kind That's- of how we. Started off. The know, cover. Why like, oh, don't we talk about
1: Pacific But let's go into all these other movies. All right, Will um, be. Why don't you start off just like talking about Pacific Rim's world building and why it's successful, why it's a great example of world building?
0: So I think it's a really great example of world building because they do it. They start off right away with the montage of like and and Raleigh's uh, narration of the world, and he's basically basically in, like, introducing the audience to this world and how. These beasts, you know, came from the breach underground. Uh, they do a really great job of, like, highlighting, basically just, like, flipping through channels of the news stations, like, talking about the first kaiju attack. I thought that was really interesting. And then, like, through the progression of, of Jaeger technology, uh, they do a, I, I really like the idea of, like, having them film it in, like, black and white to make it look, like, old-timey, even though it's not. It's, like, in our own future, it's their past, so it's almost this weird disconnect where even though what there's what we're watching is our future it's he's showing us their, their own past um, and how the Jaeger, Jaeger technology has evolved and um, how the drift compatibility thing works uh, I also I just like how like the the role of how Jaeger pilots uh, how he talks about how they became celebrities. Uh, in the world, and that's really neat and interesting. How kaiju's and Jaegers have kind of, they kind of sort of became like iconic, thi- you know, things in the world. Uh, you've got the character, Dr. Uh, Charlie Kelly's character, Charlie Day's character, and um, as he's the scientist, is it, his name is Newt, I think, as well, Newton. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's like a kaiju. Uh, they call him a kaiju groupie because he loves. To- the the beasts as as like scientific creatures and he like has tattoos of them on, on his sleeves um and then raleigh has kind of been like he's the guy who's like fought all these and he's like if you really saw one you would not be this like obsessed with them like this uh and uh mako mori is a great character uh how she lives in this world because like all these characters in in this in the movie were like our age or younger when the first kaiju attacked it all like all and so they like grow up in this like post kaiju world uh so i thought that that was really you know, how they deal how they handle situations is very much would be it's very different than how we handle situations in our own life because we don't have to deal with giant you know 50 foot monsters coming out of the water <laughs> attacking our cities uh and the whole idea behind like a wall to uh get rid of them and you know you've got politicians who say this is how we should do it you've got other politi- and then you've got the military who's like the jaegers are still our best option and then they see that the wall crumbles and basically i'm just telling the movie right now <laughs> what i'm saying is that the movie does a really good job of like showcasing how the world interacts with each other and the kaiju uh in in pacific rim v- u- using like great filmmaking techniques and editing
1: so what are the techniques they use? They use. I know you mentioned they use like voiceover with Raleigh. Um, do they do like a montage and stuff? They and, do the news montage.
0: They do, they do. a news montage. They do like, at the a beginning. combo of
1: all the uh, world building techniques, basically.
0: Yeah, and he and it's and it's Guillermo del Toro's like uh, you know love of the genre that really kind of sells it because he could he everything he does is with a, a a swift hand with love and care and detail. Um, the Dome, which is where all the Jaegers are housed, has, like, it's all, like, meticulously painted to make it look like it's, you know, been used for years, and then it's, like, the last bastion of hope, um, and that you you see that the Jaegers are war-torn, like, they've got scratches all over them uh, that you can't clearly see unless they've got, you're shining a light on them. Uh, just the whole, everything feels real. I mean, I know we're talking about giant Fifty-foot monsters and robots fighting each other, but like everything about the world feels like you could just live in it. And I think, and I think he does that with uh, expert production design and great cinematography. Um, and you kind of just see the scope of the world um, in the uh, small sense of character interactions, and as well as the larger global scale of the the conflict.
1: I think one of the things that Pacific Rim benefits from is that it's rooted in the real world. And I feel like sometimes world building can be a little easier when it is rooted in that kind of thing. Or it can be harder. It depends on like what kind of story you're telling. So it's rooted in that and also draws on like our genre expectations of monster movies. And basically the world that they're in kind of had that like monster movie education as well. So they're like genre savvy
0: it's almost yeah it's kind of like when um in in the movie scream it's Mm -hmm. a bunch of these people who have seen these horror movies trying to fight off a serial killer Mm
1: -hmm.
0: uh in a horror movie yeah so uh, it's kind of like with their knowledge of all this like like cool like genre stuff that they grew up with they're now taking that to like the real level
1: yeah um, the world itself is like pretty simple. It just like has slight variations on our real world, but it's so informed by previous monster movie, mecha, anime genres that it's easy for us to just kind of like fall into that world. I think. Um, yeah. Anya, anything else you want to add about Pacific Rim? I,
2: no, I completely agree. It's the best.
1: Yay! Yay. So yeah, um, I think that maybe it's a little easier for movie for world movies that are based in the real world to kind of world build because they already have that basis. And um, although it it can suffer from it too because sometimes it just, like, makes small variations or, like, does things that wouldn't be completely realistic if it stems from, like, the world that we're living in. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think that... Do you guys have anything else you want to add about world building?
0: Just that it's really fun... Uh, it's really fun to think about like in terms of like genre movies, like how just in, in both like the culture of the movie and how they like, like how Mad Max like, the, how that culture has like reacted to the how they've like kind of bounced back in like this weird new culture and then how like Pacific Rim like, almost like fights against it because they don't want these Kaijus. so they're like that you know we're gonna try our best to be like the best we can be in this world. Uh, with, and not lose our humanity. <laughs> yeah.
1: All right. Um, let's move on to the last segment of our episode. I, really 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 really, like you. I really, 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 really like you. Anya, why don't you start us off?
2: All right. I saw Hamilton this past week.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, and it was nothing short of life changing. And I'm not being hyperbolic with that. Um, it is as incredible as you think it is, and more so. Um, I think what's really getting to me is that I remember when Lin Manuel Miranda announced this as a mixtape before it was ever a musical, and I was really excited for it then. And I was like, Oh man, a cool like mixtape album about founding fathers. That's going to be super cool. Lin Manuel Miranda's super talented. Yay! And then like I watched it grow into this thing that became so much bigger than we could have ever predicted. And it's become this whole beast, and I just feel very grateful that I got to see it, because um, it's something that has had a big impact on my life, um, and it was amazing, and I already want to see it again, and I love it, and it's perfect, and I could talk for hours about it, but it's just amazing, and my heart bursts when Aww. I think about it, so.
1: I'm happy that you finally got to experience it, Anya. <laughs> Thank you. It's
2: it's amazing, so yeah, that's gonna make me really happy for probably like the next like three months. So, <laughs> yay! So yeah, that's mine. Very simple,
1: short, and sweet. Will What is yours this week?
0: Uh, mine kind of goes along the lines of world building. I picked up uh, Star Wars Bloodline uh, from the new book from Claudia Gray. Uh, she did Lost Stars, which I talked about early on in the podcast, uh, and she's come out with a second Star Wars book. Uh, it's Based in, in between Return of the Jedi and The Force Awakens, it takes place roughly 20 years after Return of the Jedi, and it's about Princess Leia and dealing with the Senate of the New Republic. Uh, and she's basically, you know, it's from her point of view, which is really cool, because you, you don't really get to see that a, a lot. Um, and she is this hardened senator. Uh doesn't really say what planet she's representing, because... I mean, she would have been representing Alderaan, but she doesn't, they actually don't say what planet she's rep- from uh, in this case. Uh, but she is on one, she's basically disheartened with the Senate. It's before the First Order shows up, so there's relative peace in the galaxy, and it's basically um, her and her staffers, like, running around the galaxy trying to solve, like, a problem a cartel problem right now. Um, I'm only six chapters in, uh, but it's basically, <laughs> if there were more expletives, it would have been like a Veep episode. Cause it, it's like her and C-3PO is like her Gary. And then you've got uh, like her military escort. You've got her um, like two staffers. And then you've got this other guy, this other Senator who is basically, if he was, if the empire was still around, he totally would have been an Imperial um because he, he also he says like he like glorifies it too and she they have they've had like four discussions that turned into arguments about like the merits of the rebellion versus the, the empire and i kind of live for that shit because it's like all a bunch of great like like star wars politics which i mean a lot of people hated that about the prequels but i think they get they get it right when they talk about it minimally they talk just about it in like broad ideas and whatnot not just minute details um and so it, and she's like uh the the senate has has formed into two parties the populists and the centrists the centrists are more interested in like a more l- larger scale government uh kind of they're they're basically federalists and then uh the populists are more uh they want more independence they're basically anti-federalists uh, and they they uh the the almost imperial guy is is a uh, centrist and Princess Leia is a populist because she saw what happened the last time the Republic got too much power. Um, so I really I'm really loving it right now. Uh, they there's been a great conversation with Han Solo. You get re- you get real insight into how much she loves Han Solo, which is great. Uh, and it's uh, before everything falls to shit in her in their lives. So they're like still married and. She calls him her husband, and it's great. Uh, and he's like a racer. He's like a legendary racer now. Like he and it's, he's like not a scoundrel. I mean, he is still, you know, he's he's not a smuggler. So, um, and Chewbacca is often Kashyyyk, living life, the domesticated life. Uh, so it's it's great. it's 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 really fun because it's kind of like. Uh, it's very world-building because it, it deals with the Senate and the New Republic and how everything functions and also, like, how people feel about the New Republic and how people feel about the the Empire and stuff like that. So, I don't know. It's really it's really great.
2: That's really interesting. Mentioning world-building and going along with our episode and what you've been saying is that that was one of my biggest criticisms against Force Awakens is that so much of its world-building relies on outside material. Yeah. And I think that is a problem and that is not how you should build your world. Oh, very um, much. And so I think that was one of the, that's one of the biggest problems I have with Star Wars right now, is that they're relying so much on outside materials for their world building. Yeah, and, and I'm like, like no. Nope. The
1: comics that get released with
2: the movie. The comics, mm. the books, and it's like, it's not, it's that's not fair because not everyone's gonna go out and get those materials, and so you have important plot matters and things that happen. Like, there's a shot in The Force Awakens when they use Starkiller for the first time, and it destroys one of the planets, and, like, it focuses on these characters. Like, it's like it has this, like, massive close-up on these characters and you're like oh they're important for some reason and you don't you don't find out why they're important except unless you read the outside materials and like that is really bad world building
0: if you if you read the novelization of the book or if you read just like the stuff around the journey to the force awakens you'll you would understand uh and that's a that's a huge problem but um it's a
1: marketing thing too though it's
0: it's a marketing thing uh that all said this book is great uh, cause it's, it's like, it's like Princess Leia's like one last mission in the Senate before she's like, I'm out of here. I'm out of oh here, but no, I, I want but that's she's that's like, that. she, she thought about, you know, she wants to do one good thing before she leaves the Senate, which has just turned into nothing. So it's, it's a, it's a good read. Um, I'm only at the beginning, but it's fun.
1: All right. So, HT, what about you? All right. Um, I really like this week is actually something that hasn't come out yet. And I don't even know if I'm gonna like it, but it's something <laughs> I'm really excited for, and I can't really explain why. The Shallows, A.K.A. Blake Lively in a bikini versus a shark, which That's have... out. yeah, it's out now. Right? Yeah. Oh, it's out. It's Never mind. Week. It is this out. Week. It's out this week. Yeah. It comes out you this weekend. Yet. I haven't seen it yet. <laughs> just like, I can't explain why I'm really excited about it. It just looks like a stupid fun movie, but at the same time, it has like an 89% on Rotten Tomatoes. Really? Yeah, it's like well, when it first the reviews stopped being embargoed, um, when the embargo lifted, I mean, it got like a ninety-one percent, but I think it's down to like eighty-something.
0: That's still pretty um, good for like a movie that people think is just going to be. You know, that's a type of movie that would normally get like forty-seven percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah,
1: I know. I, it looks so stupid. Oh, it's at seventy-four percent now. But
0: oh, started okay. it was
1: like ninety-one percent.
0: Is it still crazy. got the fresh rating? Like the yeah, it's like still the fresh. tomato?
1: So, I think like from sixty percent up is fresh. Yeah, mm-hmm. but. I don't know, I've been, like, excited, and I just really want to, there's been lots, I've been reading lots of, um, articles about people who's, by people who've seen it, and who are, like, obsessed with the seagull in it, like, Steven Seagal.
2: Yeah, the seagull is apparently, like, a huge, like, thing. Yeah. Also, I think for as, like, as stupid as it looks, like, it also looks gorgeous, like, visually, it looks stunning. Yeah, like, the
1: cinematography looks amazing.
0: Guys, um, this this is the movie that we wanted to watch. Wanted the Revenant to be, I think.
1: Oh, I think so. You know, all we needed to do was put Leonardo DiCaprio in a bikini. Obviously, it would have been Duh. much better.
0: <laughs> yeah, Duh.
1: I know. Jeez. Um. Yeah. I, it just it looks fun. I'm seeing it this Friday. I just wanted really? to give a shout out to The Shallows, even though I don't know if it's going to be actually good or not. I. You'll have to let us know. Yeah, I will let you guys know. I really want to see Steven Seagal. just like the whole interview, it's a great interview from Vulture by Cal Buchanan, who like is in love with this movie, it's hilarious, Um, he's like one of their movie reviewers, and he just did like this interview with a director talking entirely about the the Seagull, and he's just like, the Seagull is the best character of the entire summer. That's wild. I know, okay. That's my really like for this week, even though it doesn't really constitute a like, it's something I'm excited for.
0: All right. But do you like that? Do you like that? You're excited for it.
1: I, I'm intrigued. That I'm excited for it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can explain why I am. But you know, this will be my my summer blockbuster.
0: Whoa, nice. this I... one is.
2: <laughs> All right, guys. Uh, so, if you guys have any thoughts on world building in films. If you guys have any thoughts on Hamilton, if you've seen it, or if you want to see it, I'm sure you all want to. Um, Everyone does. Um, If you have any thoughts, if you've read Bloodline yet and you have any thoughts on that, and if you've seen The Shallows or you want to, definitely come let us know and talk to us about these things and where can they do that, Willoughby?
0: You can do that on our blog at millennialfalconpodcast.wordpress.com or on Facebook. uh, If you search for us there, we're at... We're on Twitter as at Falcon Podcast. Uh, you can rate, review, to, and subscribe to us on iTunes and Google Play. And if you're so inclined, we're also on SoundCloud. Um, so, and where can they find you guys?
1: You can find me at Bui on Twitter.
2: You can find me at Anya Crittenden on Twitter.
0: And I'm at Willoughby Dobbs on Twitter.
1: All right. Thank you for Until joining time. us. Bye-bye.